Christ, Heavenly Father, we do not have Christ except by your grace and your goodness to us. Help us to understand that though we have everything and we have not Christ, ultimately we have nothing. And if we have Christ and have nothing else, ultimately we have everything. So help our hearts to resound with the words of the writer of this song. Hallelujah. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to glorify Him today, to treasure Him by Your grace and Your mercy. Help us as we open the Word of God to see something of the wonder of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name and by His grace and through His Spirit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Such a treat to be back here with you again. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. The book of 2 Samuel. I, it is Mother's Day, and often I just, when I was preaching regularly, I, would, I kind of skipped Mother's Day. It was kind of a nuisance to me and in a series. It was just something different I had to prepare, and I'd rather stick in a series, but... Um, since we sort of finished our little mini-series in Ephesians 5, I thought I would come, and let me see if I get this right, and, uh, and speak to you on Mother's Day uh, about motherhood in the worst of times from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now, I will admit that many Mother's Days I have bemoaned the fact that it is indeed a Hallmark holiday, and somebody's making a ton of money, and the florists are making a lot of money, and mostly I, I remind myself and others of those things on days when I fail to honor my mother and my wife, and it's a handy excuse. Um, let me just give you a, a little bit of theology maybe for celebrating a holiday such as this. Maybe it was created by big business. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't really care in John chapter 10, Jesus is recorded as going to a feast of dedication. The feast of dedication is not an Old Testament feast. It stemmed out of an event in the Old Testament, but it was not prescribed by God. He didn't tell his people to celebrate it, but Jesus celebrated it because it was a good feast. It was a good thing to remember. It stemmed out of the book of Esther. And it was a good thing, and celebrating motherhood is a good thing. If you have your Bible, stand with me in respect for the Word of God, and we're going to read the first 14 verses of Second Samuel chapter 21. Hear now the Word of God. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or of gold 
with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, of the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son Jonathan. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, Armoni and Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together. And they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. When it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul in Gilboa. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin, in Zila, in the grave of Kish his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the word of God remains forever. You may be seated. This morning... We are going to honor mothers, and we're going to ask then, what makes a mother honorable? And we're going to answer this question, what makes a mother honorable, in this way. Mothers are given the ability to love deeply, but with the mother's ability to love deeply, it comes the price of hurting as deeply as they love. I think few mothers, if any, have the privilege of walking through life without suffering very, very deeply. But really it is the convergence of love and suffering that makes motherhood so honorable. If a mother loved less, she would suffer less in times of tragedy. But a mother who sheds no tears is, I think, frankly, a tragedy in and of itself. And so we're looking at a mother who suffers deeply. The Apostle Paul urges older women to teach younger women to love their husbands and to love their children in Titus 2 and verse 4. But as you know, if you're going to love a husband deeply, you're going to be hurt deeply. 
because we husbands are deeply flawed. To love children deeply is to suffer when they suffer. But today, we're going to honor the love of a mother. We're going to honor, I trust, the God who created a mother's love. We're going to encourage mothers to embrace the love of their children, encourage us husbands to recognize the gift of their wife's love and cultivate it with them. I want to do that by telling you a story this morning. The story that's found here in 2 Samuel 21. The story actually begins in the book of Joshua, chapter 9. Joshua and the children of Israel are about to enter into the promised land. Problem, there's already people living in there. It's a good place to live, and so there's already people there. So Joshua and the people of God are entering into the land of Israel with their swords drawn, and there's battles, there's fights, and they're crushing Everyone, they're just blowing their enemies out of the water. Actually, to be more specific, God is crushing their enemies for them. This little group of people called the Gibeonites, they're getting up and having their cup of coffee in the morning and they open the newspaper and sure enough, the Israelites are on the march again. Nobody can stand in their way and they, they think to themselves, we have to do something, or we're going to be next. There's a giant fire raging in Canada. I don't know if you've heard about that. I actually smelled it the other night. Have you smelled it? Once in a while, a whiff of that smoke will come through. Seems like, anyway, I don't know, it turns foggy at my house and smells like smoke once in a while. I don't know how else to explain it. Anyway, it's around this town of Fort McMurray. It's a frightening thing to have a giant fire around your town. 88,000 people getting in their cars, getting out of town. The Gibeonites probably felt as though they were surrounded by a giant fire. What do they do? They really have two options. They could try to join some sort of alliance and try to fight them, or they could talk them into a peace treaty, a covenant of peace. And so, perhaps you remember this story, the Gibeonites they, they think, how are we going to do this? Well, they take some really dry bread. They take some, some sacks that are all worn out and got holes in them. They put on their oldest shoes that have got patches on them. They have wineskins that are old and they have patches. They've been sewn together. And they come and they visit Joshua and, and they say, they say, when we left, our shoes were new and our bread was just fresh out of the oven. We've been traveling all this way to come and see you. We want to make peace with you. And, you know, it's kind of like if somebody asks you to dinner and you don't want to go, but they ask you to come to dinner like in four months, you're like, okay, because four months is probably never going to come. So, so they think, well, these Gibeonites appear to be from a thousand miles away, so let's, it's, it's not that big a deal. We can make a covenant of peace with them. And so they do, not realizing that, th- turns out, three days later, the Israelites find out the Gibeonites were just from around the corner took less than three days for them to get to Joshua. But Joshua refused to kill them. He made a covenant of peace with them. He promised he would not hurt them. 
But he did make servants out of them. Specifically, he made them woodcutters and water gatherers. or Turned them into loggers. Cut our firewood. Wouldn't that be nice? It'd be nice people to have around if you live in Minnesota. Joshua did not pray, the Bible says. He didn't seek the Lord's counsel in this, but he made a covenant. And even though the covenant was made under false pretenses, Joshua stuck to the covenant. A little while later, not too long afterwards, some other kings decided to attack the Gibeonites. Gibeonites decided, we're going to call Joshua for help. He's our friend now. He, they promised. They would protect us. So Joshua, he goes to help them out. You can imagine, somewhat reluctantly, uh, if you ever made a new friend and you're not sure that you want to really be their friend and then they call you up and ask you for a loan or, or call you to ask you to beat up somebody else for him. That's kind of annoying. Well, that's what happened here. The Gibeonites called Joshua for help and so Joshua marches all night to, to get to them and, and to help them. And, and sure enough, Joshua just crushes the attackers of the Gibeonites. And not only Joshua, but, but the Bible says God sent giant hailstones to crush the attackers. In fact, God killed more people with the hailstones than Joshua did with the sword. This was the time, by the way, when Joshua, he needed more time to get the job done. Joshua, he's a task-oriented guy. I'm killing today, and I don't have enough time to do all my killing, so I need more time. God, would you please just make the sun stop? And so you have the longest, literally the longest day in the world when God just made the sun stop. So Joshua had enough time to continue killing and protect the Gibeonites. Fast forward 400 years in Israel's history. Israel has settled into the promised land. It has a new king in the name, by the name of Saul. The Gibeonites are still living in the land, in the nation of Israel. They're still the servants of Israel. Why or when, we don't exactly know, but Saul is described in verse 2 as having a zeal for the house, or for the, the sons of Judah and Israel, and he sought to kill the Gibeonites. Well, we don't know if Saul was trying to strengthen the nation to, to weed out the potential threats. Or, or some have suggested that Saul was trying to make up for some of the really stupid things he did while he was trying to kill David. Saul at one time killed 85 priests in a little town called Nob. And, uh, and, and so maybe Saul was trying to make up for that by... Uh, killing these Gibeonites. We don't know exactly when or why he did this, but he decided that he was going to exterminate the Gibeonites. We don't know, even know how many he slaughtered, but we know that he intended to kill all of them. And then fast forward a couple more years. Saul is now dead. David is now on the throne. There's a problem in verse 1. The problem is a famine. Now, Kids, you know what a famine is? A famine is, it's like the time between lunch and supper when mom says you can't have a snack. It means you're hungry and there's no food. Only it means there's no food ever. You can't find food. And for three years, there's a famine. Famines are very dangerous. They're deadly. 
one year of famine is bad, back-to-back years are terrible. We live in a global food market. If, if, if all the corn dies in Minnesota, it doesn't matter because we have Nebraska. And if it dies there, we have Oklahoma, and, and we have China, and we have Russia. We, have, we can get food from all over the place, but, but if you don't have semi-trucks and trains and distribution like that, it's pretty tough to, to eat when there is no food. And if there's no rain, there's, there's no food. That seems to be the problem. There's no rain. Three years of famine in a row. It's kind of like Elijah. You remember Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three years. And uh, the, the, really the, the nation is, is in really bad shape. David is the king. He's responsible for the survival of his people. The problems of the nation are ultimately his problems. And if it doesn't start raining, people are going to start dying, and they're going to start dying fast. It's really kind of an interesting situation because God's judgment here, uh, this is God that made the rain stop. The Bible tells us that. It's it's interesting because God delayed this. It didn't happen exactly at the moment that Saul killed the Gibeonites. For whatever reason, God in his providence decided to hold off on the judgment. He didn't stick Saul personally with this. Saul's dead. I think, it's, I think God is doing two things here at once. Um, God is going to vindicate the Gibeonites, but he's also going to remove potential threats from David's kingdom. David was a good king. He was a killer king. Uh, that means he killed a lot of people, but David wasn't indiscriminate about the people he killed. Uh, he, was, he was pretty surgical about the, the people he killed, especially important people. He was kind of hesitant to do that, um, especially in relation to the nation of, or the household of Saul. Um, David refused to kill Saul on several occasions. Uh, I think uh, the death of Uriah, when, when David had Uriah killed, that's really uncharacteristic for David because he wasn't really a, a cold-blooded killer. He had that poet's heart, that, just that little soft part of his heart. And so when David took over the throne in a, in a monarchy system, every member of the old king's family was a potential threat, and David just sort of let him be. He, just, he, he didn't want any more bloodshed than there had to be, and he just sort of left him alone. But God is going to vindicate the Gibeonites and he's going to get rid of the house of Saul at the same time. So I think that's kind of what God is doing here uh, from a bigger perspective. But David has a problem. The problem is the famine. He prays and says, God, why? why? Why is there a famine? God tells David why, but he doesn't actually give David an explicit solution. You see that. God says, well, the famine is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death in verse 1. But he doesn't give him a solution, at least not explicitly in the text. It seems like the solution is you need to go to the Gibeonites and you need to talk to them and ask what is going to make this situation right. What is going to appease them? What is going to satisfy them? Because... Saul, as the king of Israel, was sworn to protect them, and he didn't protect them. He 
he tried to slaughter them. He had betrayed them. I want us to note here the seriousness of covenant breaking in God's eyes. I think covenant breaking is a minor thing in our eyes. We, we break them often. Covenants with spouses, covenants with churches. We don't really consider them binding in a life or death sort of fashion. We don't really think God's going to start killing people for covenant breaking. Especially a covenant like this. It was entered on into it was entered into in under false pretenses. I mean this was and this was four hundred years ago. I think I think we like the caveat of new information. This covenant is binding until there's new information. Okay? If new information comes out, then the covenant goes away. But that doesn't work in this case. Think of Isaac blessing Jacob instead of Esau. You remember that. He blessed Jacob under false pretenses. He thought he was Esau, but even after he had done so, Isaac said to Esau, he said about Jacob, I have blessed him and he will be blessed. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Esau, even though I thought I was blessing you and I wasn't. Just because I blessed Jacob under false pretenses doesn't mean the blessing does not stick. And in this case, God still considers the covenant with the Gibeonites binding. So be careful about entering into covenants lightly and be really careful about breaking them. But I also want to encourage you to revel in the glory of God's covenant love to us because we might stand in some fear of God's serious view of covenants because we are such bad covenant breakers. But we can revel, can't we, in God's glory that He would make a covenant with us knowing how seriously He takes them. And when He has covenanted to love and protect us, you know that when the Lord Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, He absolutely will not. So, David asks a question in verse 3. What should I do? How can I make atonement? The Gibeonites give this answer in verse 4. We don't want your silver. We don't want your gold. Old Testament law had monetary compensation for slaves that were gored by an ox. And the, the Gibeonites were slave people. You could just pay 30 pieces of silver per per person. But there's, a, I think, a big difference between being gored by an ox and hunted down by a king. And so the Gibeonites recognize that their lives are worth as much as any human life. It would have really cheapened the lives of those who are killed to put some sort of monetary value on them. The Gibeonites also say we, we don't want to just go in and kill people randomly. They understand in verse 4, I think, Saul's actions to be Saul's responsibility. Now they don't want to inflict punishment on the general populace. Um, and so this punishment they settle on in verse 5 and 6 is this. Give us seven of his sons and we will hang them before the Lord. Remember, it was, it was the Lord that held back the rain, not the Gibeonites. So think, think through this with me. Because God apparently says to David, 
Ask the Gibeonites what is going to satisfy them. And they, so David does, and the Gibeonites say, give us seven sons. But then they say, we're going to hang them before the Lord. Because, again, ultimately it's the Lord that stopped the rain, not the Gibeonites. And so these seven dead bodies are going to rise up before God as a testimony that the Gibeonites have been appeased. Essentially, they tell God, they're assigned to God, it's time to let the rain fall. So the sons are just going to hang there, not just so that other people can see the punishment on Saul's house, but so that God could see these people. Now, hanging serves two purposes. One, it kills a person. But the second is that it puts their dead body on public display and makes a very powerful statement to the living. So you have these two dynamics of hanging happening at the same time. Hanging is the curse of covenant breakers. Now you'll notice in verse 7, David pays careful attention to his own covenant. Okay? Uh, he's going to, he, he has made a covenant with Mephibosheth who is Jonathan's son. There's two Mephibosheths in this story, which is a little confusing because, honestly, do you th- it's crazy enough that there's one Mephibosheth in the world. Can you th- imagine that there's two in the same family? But there is, and I guess it was a really popular name in uh, the 10th century B.C. Uh, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, David had made a covenant with him. You see the, the oath of the Lord, which is between them in verse 7. And so David is not going to violate an, a, a, an oath that he made with one just to fulfill or take care of a, a broken oath on the other side. So David pays careful attention to his own covenant. Mephibosheth, by the way, is five years old when David takes the throne. Depending on when this story takes place, and commentators are divided, I tend to think that this is probably... Earlier in David's reign, it comes at the end of 2 Samuel, but the end of 2 Samuel is kind of a, a mixture of various events that happened in David's life, almost like an appendix, I think. And so I tend to think that this event here happens fairly early in David's reign. I, I don't think God is going to uh, delay his punishment that long. And so Mephibosheth 5, when David takes the throne, he's maybe 11, 12 at this time. Um, maybe not even a teenager. In verse 8, then David selects the sons that are going to be executed, not Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, but he takes two sons of Rizpah. Now Rizpah is, we know from verse 11, Saul's concubine. Now, for the kids, a concubine is not quite a wife, but almost. She's like a second wife who's almost a wife, but not quite. It's a good thing that we've gotten rid of concubines because it's really a a bad setup. But it existed in in their day. And Rizpah was Saul's concubine. We meet her in 2 Samuel chapter 3 when just after Saul had died, uh, a man named Abner, who was Saul's military commander, Abner slept with her and not because he loved her, but it was a political maneuver. This is what, this is what they did in that day. You want to make a political move? Uh, sleep with the king's concubine. Uh, David's son Absalom did it. Um, Reuben slept with his 
own father's concubine. It's a, it's a power move, and, and not a good one, not one that we would recommend by any means. Rizpah was not loved like a wife. You think about this, she's a concubine. If he really loved her, he would have made her his wife. But So she wasn't loved like a wife, but being a concubine, she could never be anyone else's wife. Rizpah was just a tool in the hands of the politically powerful. Rizpah lived under the complete control of men who didn't love her like she wanted to be loved. Rizpah had no opinion that really counted. She had no influence. And she had only two sons. You notice that it says David took the two sons of Rizpah. These are the only sons she had, apparently. We don't know how old she was, but I think she was probably not beyond her 40s, meaning her boys were perhaps in their 20s. In a sense, she's widowed. Saul is dead. If she's as young as I think she is, she's a fairly young widow. We also read that David took the sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul. Mirab's an interesting lady. She was promised to David. Okay, Remember David and Goliath? And Saul, Saul says, if anybody goes and kills Goliath, he can marry the princess. And Mirab is the princess. And so David goes and kills the giant and doesn't actually get to marry the princess. At least not this one. He gets to marry the other one. Saul decides to give the princess to somebody else, a fellow by the name of Adriel, the Maholathite. And she has five boys. Now, if David is 17 when he kills Goliath, um, he's 30 when he takes the throne. So that's 13 years, year of pregnancy. So Mirab's oldest son... Could only have been, she, he could have been no older than 12 when David became king. Then you take five boys, and I don't know if there's any girls mixed in there. Maybe her youngest of the five was four or five years old when David took the throne. If this happens, 10 years into David's reign, her oldest, or, or Mirab's boys, probably range in age from 22 down to 14 or 15. It's, it's speculation, but, but it seems to me that these are probably young men or big boys. These boys are innocent. Their only crime is that they had been born into Saul's family. But David gave these boys to the Gibeonites, and verse 9 says, they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord so that the seven of them fell together. It says they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. This would have been early April, um, pretty close to the time we're in right now. Uh, Exodus 9, 31 and 32 indicates that the barley harvest is the very first of the harvests. And now we're introduced again to Rizpah and her gruesome vigil in verse 10. Rizpah is the mother of two of these boys, and it says she took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, either as a blanket or as a tent, she didn't really need a tent for rain because it wasn't raining. Um, so she could have used it as a blanket. She could have used it for a shade, I suppose, in the sun. It seems that 
Rizpah laid this out for herself. It, it indicates that she was determined to stay there as long as necessary. <clears throat> How long was it necessary? Well, from the beginning of harvest, <clears throat> excuse me, until it rained on them from the sky or from the heavens. Rainy season begins in October. Some commentators think it almost rained immediately, but I think the power of this lady's actions lies in her commitment. And so she takes this blanket, makes either a tent or just spreads it out on a rock, right next to where her two boys and their five half-brothers have been hanged. And they're hanging there in the tree, and she just takes a blanket and, and stays there for five months. You notice in verse 13, the end of verse 13, it says that David gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They were probably, all their flesh at that point had been completely rotted off and they were just skeletons by the time this ordeal was over. And so she sat there under the shadow of her dead boys for five months, watching them decay and deteriorate. But notice what she does. She allows neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. <clears throat> you recall, again, Goliath's threat. When David came to kill Goliath, Goliath said, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. The Proverbs says, warns young men, that if they rebel against their parents, eagles are going to come and pluck out their eyes. There's some really gruesome pictures in the Bible. Eagles plucking out eyes is pretty gross. Um, Queen Jezebel, you remember, was pushed out of a window, run over by a chariot, and the dogs came and, and ate her. It was very nasty, very dishonorable. Rizpah is not going to allow that. Here's the picture. She's sitting on this rock just a few feet away from the bodies of her sons. She's feeling sorrow. No doubt she wants nothing more than to tear them down and to bury them. Every moment they hang there, her grief is renewed. We, we lost uh, our, our baby this year and just day before Valentine's Day. And uh, we were allowed to take this little body home, about two and a half, three inches long, and, and to bury it. But there's frost in the ground. And I remember that sense. I could not wait for the frost to get out of the ground. I just wanted to, to bury it, to, to, to put it to rest. And, and those months from Valentine's Day until the frost finally went out seemed, seemed long to me. And here's Rizpah with, with her sons hanging there on the wall and there's nothing she can do about it but to beat the birds away all day long and to drive away the, the dogs all night. Towns full of wild dogs and, and can you imagine the smell of seven bodies hanging? And can you imagine... Can you, the nose of a dog, I mean, they find this stuff. And, and so they're coming all night long and the birds circling all day long. And here's Rizpah 
beating the birds away, chasing the dogs away with tears in her eyes and a broken heart. Just go away. Leave my boys alone. And for five months, this went on. The commentator John Gill said, no doubt, Rizpah sat there praying that rain might come. Please send rain. Oh God, please send rain. Bring this to an end. This is really a stunning picture and, and if I could say this, I don't think anyone but a mother could have done what Rizpah did. I have witnessed the love of a mother, both as a son and as a husband. I have been loved greatly by my father, and I love my children as a father, but I'm here to confess to you that there is a dimension to a mother's love that a father's love simply does not have. And Rizpah demonstrates love that only a mother can have for her children. There's not a father that I know who would sit here silently day by day, chasing off birds all day long, chasing off dogs all night long, silently suffering in the pain, feeling sharply the injustice of it all, but, but still submitting to this appropriate justice. Her boys had done nothing wrong. It was, it was that Saul. It was that Saul that had taken from her any chance of ever being loved by a husband. That Saul that just added her to his growing list of nighttime partners. But I suppose, perhaps sitting there on that rock with the famine now in its third year, Rizpah feels very keenly how absolutely critical it must be to the entire nation that her boys would, would die. Who knows, but what Rizpah herself was having a difficult time finding food like everyone else in a famine-stricken land would. And so maybe in that sense, her boys were, were redeemers and they were heroes. Yes, they were cursed. They were struck down in the prime of life for a crime they did not commit but still there was something noble about them because in their death they held the promise of atonement and life for a nation and, and as only a mother's heart could ask she must have asked would no one see the honor in what they had done in their death they save more people than they ever could have in life and so she stays as far as we know, without uttering a single complaint, without raising a fuss, without hiring an attorney, without causing any havoc about the apparent injustice of it all. Rizpah pictures for us grace in the midst of a curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And God had laws about if you're going to hang somebody, you take them down by nighttime. That was that was a big concern when Jesus was on the cross. Even the people that hated Jesus said, we got to tear him down. We can't leave him up for the Passover. But here these boys are left day after day and night after long, lonely night. It's a curse. It's a wretched place. You don't even want to go by there. You don't want to see it. But there's Rizpah bringing grace. Someone loves these boys deeply. She brings honor to a sense of shame. She brings honor to a sense of shame. Her presence there under those conditions speaks 
honor to those boys. She loves them. She cares for them. They are worth her affections, worthy of her affections, she proclaims. She, drum, she demonstrates love and tenderness in a place of cruelty and horror. The love and the tenderness that only a mother could have in a, in a place of such cruelty and such horror, such awfulness. It's really a stark contrast. The love of this woman with the raw horror of boys hanging on a wall. As her vigil went on then, Rizpah became an iconic figure, a living legend of sort. Adam Clark said, who can read the account of Rizpah's maternal affection for her sons that were now hanged without feeling his mind deeply impressed with sorrows? And indeed, that is the case. And, and David certainly could not hear of Rizpah without having his heart moved. He receives word in verse 11 of what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, had done. And so he was moved to honor the bones of Saul and the bones of his friend Jonathan and the bones of these seven boys. Saul and Jonathan, you recall, were killed in battle and the Philistines knocked their heads off and took their bodies and hung them up on the wall like trophies, kind of a ghastly trophy, but a trophy nonetheless. The men of Jabesh-Gilead heard about it, this little city, and they got together and they stole the bodies one night off the wall and they brought them back and gave them a decent proper burial. It was, it was a great shame to be uh, not cared for properly in death. And so it's at this time that David is moved by Rizpah to honor not just the bones of these seven boys, but the bones of Saul and his best friend Jonathan. And so he gathers them up in verse 13, and they bury them in verse 14 in the grave of Kish his father. They bring them back home, and they lay them to rest. <clears throat> verse 14 ends this way. It's very interesting. After that... God was moved by prayer for the land. It seems really, at the end of the day, that there's two things that have to happen for this curse to be lifted. Number one, the boys have to die. But number two, it seems that Saul and Jonathan's bones had to be relocated. You notice that it's after this, after they took the bones of Saul and Jonathan and after they did honor to the bones of these boys, that God was moved by prayer for the land. So what do we make of this story? Well, here's some thoughts. First of all, redemption is delightful, but very difficult. Redemption is delightful, but it is expensive. The rains that finally fell in verse 10, must have seemed to Rizpah the sweetest drops of water in the world. Don't you think? This famine is finally over. Her boys have not died in vain. Her vigil is over. The king is coming to take these bones down and honor them as they should have been honored. 
Redemption is delightful, but it is difficult. It comes at a tremendously high price. Rizpah speaks to us also of the compassion and the tenacity of a mother's love. You don't beat buzzards off the corpse of your sons if you do not have deep compassion. And the only way you can do it for five months, day after day after 150 days, is if you have some tenacity. And a mother's love is not only compassionate, it is tenacious. I remember a time in our teenage, my teenage years when uh, one of us siblings was going through some difficult, a, a difficult period of life. My mother hardly slept for months on end. She was just on alert. She was on guard. And I, I, I remember that to this day. This was 20 years ago. But I remember the, the tenacious love of my mother who would forego sleep for the sake of her children day after day and night after night. Rizpah reminds us of the power of a mother's tears to move the heart of a king. The power of a mother's tears to move the heart of a king. Rizpah is, I think, a quite unwittingly a critical component of this story because, again, at verse, the end of verse 14, if Rizpah doesn't keep her vigil for these five months, David doesn't notice her love and her compassion. David doesn't see the way she honors these boys. And if he doesn't see how she honors them, he doesn't honor them. If he doesn't honor them, there is no after that in verse 14. I, I think the way verse 14 ends indicates to me that the curse is ultimately lifted when the bones are buried and prayer is made. The tears of a woman are a powerful thing, so powerful that they can move the heart of a King, I want you to fast forward in your mind from here 1,000 years to another grisly scene. There's a king, and this king is hung, hung on a cross. And like, like Rizpah, the mother of this king is standing nearby. A sword is piercing Mary's soul, and the king looks down on her in the midst of his pain, and all the things that are going through his mind, his heart is moved to care for his mother. You remember those tender words from the Lord Jesus. Woman, behold your son. As Jesus takes care of his weeping mother. The prayers of a woman whose eyes flow with tears are powerful prayers. Powerful prayers. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. 1 Timothy 5.5 5 speaks of widows who survive by prayers day and night. The prayers of a woman who has suffered deeply and, and is in tears and is in pain move the heart of even the king of the universe. I'm so thankful for all the people that pray for me. And there's one lady in particular. She lives in... Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Her eyes have uh, nearly gone, wasted away with macular degeneration. Her husband has had mental problems for many years and now is suffering significant physical problems. But she is the sweetest lady in the world and she prays for me. I don't know why she prays for me. She barely knows me. 
But I'm so thankful for the prayers of a woman who has suffered deeply and greatly because the tears of a woman like that move the heart of the king. Mothers, raise your children to die well. Maybe this is a gruesome thought. This would be my challenge to you. Raise your children to die well. It is the way of things in this sin-cursed world. You look at your children. Perhaps you don't want to think that they will die, but they will. Pray that they die well. Embrace motherly affection, though the cost be ever so high. That affection for your children that burns in your soul from the moment they are conceived is is something that, frankly, husbands cannot fully understand and our culture, I think, despises. When my wife weeps over the loss of children we have never met, I want to share in her sorrow. And yet try as I may, I really can't. She has a deepness a deep affection by virtue of being a mother that, that I don't have. You know, our culture loves children so long as they don't interrupt the course of our life too much. It seems children, er, it sees children, I think, as things to be tended by others while they're infants, trophy gatherers once they enter kindergarten and then financial strains during college. And sacrificing a single dream for the sake of a child is, is anathema in our culture. Now the specifics of how you pour your life into your children is between you and the Lord, but, but I don't want you to ever feel as though investing your heart and soul and your blood, sweat, and tears into those little snot-nosed brats is anything less than a high and noble calling. Don't be afraid to embrace the motherly affection of Rizpah, though it drove her to the darkest moments of suffering. And that affection made her feel her loss so keenly. Embrace the suffering and the loss that comes with motherhood. Bring beauty and bring grace into the most cursed moments of life. Motherhood is not without its great joys. But by God's grace, the joys and, and by God's grace, the joys of motherhood are, I think, equal to and even greater than the sorrows. But make no mistake, motherhood involves suffering and loss. So embrace those, but embrace embrace the suffering and embrace the loss by faith. God actually is going to work all things together for good. In the final sense, every loss will be paid back a thousandfold. The hand of God himself is going to wipe away every tear. In the immediate sense, swords pierce souls. The long, lonely, tragic vigils that mothers undertake for the sake of their children will drain every tear out of their body. But embrace the sovereignty of God. It's, let me be, perfectly blunt with you, it is a risky thing to trust your children into the hands of a God who may allow them to be hurt or even killed. 
It would be easy to trust your children into God's hands if he promised that not a hair would fall from their head. It's a difficult thing to trust your children into the hands of a God who may allow them to be hanged on a wall for five months. But God is sovereign. He makes no such promises that their life is going to be easy Or as C.S. Lewis said, he is not a tame lion, but he is good. I was talking about this text with my pastor this week, and he asked this question that I would pose to you. Does God want good things only for his people? In the ultimate sense, yes, God works all things together for good. But in the temporal sense, no, because sin is a dreadful thing, a miserable thing. We ought not to think that God will ever let us think of sin otherwise. God often withholds from us in his mercy the consequences of sin. But if he did it all the time, we would quickly and readily forget how awful sin is and how much he hates it. And so he allows suffering, sometimes severe, life-threatening suffering, life-taking suffering to help us hate sin, the sin in me and the sin that is in you. Ultimately, God wants good for his people, but there is no good in the final sense without tasting the wretchedness of sin and learning to hate it. And so for all of us, we embrace the love of what is good and hate what is evil. Covenant breaking is an evil thing. The murder of those you have sworn to protect is an evil thing. And when the consequences fall, and they will, I can't help but think in terms of protecting those you have, or murdering those you have sworn to protect, I can't help but think of abortion. And, and, and sometimes we as Christians say, God's judgment is fall on, on this nation for what we have done, murdering those we have sworn to protect. And then I think of Rizpah, and I think, well, wait a second. Rizpah doesn't just get to sit back and say, let the judgment fall. No, her boys didn't do anything to deserve this, but they were involved in the judgment of God. I I think we have to be careful about being so excited for God's judgment to fall on people, not realizing that it could hurt us deeply as well. Rizpah suffers deeply because of the sin of someone else who broke a covenant. But she suffers in a way that introduces us to grace in judgment, mercy in the face of a curse. She suffers in faith, in faith that the curse will be lifted. Those boys are indeed coming off the wall. Maybe she has some hope in the resurrection. These bodies are not finished with their journey. We're going to honor them because their course is not yet done. She's going to honor them during dishonor in hope of a resurrection. So what makes the love of a mother worth celebrating? I think what makes the love of a mother worth celebrating is that it's glorious in that it reflects the love of God. The God whose own son was hung on a cross to make atonement for someone else who broke a covenant. 
the God whose own son was made a curse, but the God who made provision to care for the broken body of his son, who would not allow that dishonor to linger one moment longer than it had to, but, but the God who prepared those who honored his body, surrounded in spices, laid it in a new tomb, the God who suffered these things because resurrection is coming. All things indeed are working together for good. And so we celebrate Rizpah, the picture of a mother's love in the darkest of moments, in hope that though there is pain in the night, joy will come in the morning. And now, Father, we come to you as those who have broken your covenant, but you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ. You have given us a new covenant. You have sent your Son to hang on a cross that you might bless us and not curse us. Oh, Father, how gracious you are. Thank you for Rizpah-like mothers whose glorious reflection of the love of God is seen in the deepest and darkest and most difficult moments of life. Thank you for my mother who loved me. Thank you for my wife who loves our kids. I pray for these mothers and I pray for I pray that they would learn to love their children in the midst of difficulties. Father, we don't pray for situations like we find here. And we would ask that you would protect our children, save them from such a horrible fate. But Father, we know that sin is a dreadful thing and, and you will not let us forget it. And so when the consequences of sin invade our families many times through no fault of our own help us to bring grace and honor in the midst of curses and horror as we come to the lord's table we are thankful that you spared not your son but offered him up that we might be reconciled to you, that we might have hope that all things are working together for good to those who love God and are called by him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.